Infection control has never been more top of mind than during the COVID-19 pandemic, and rural hospitals are no exception. But with limited resources, taking on this task is not easy. So how do rural hospitals make sure their standards are up to date and their hospitals are safe? With constant education, frequent communication, and a fervent champion for infection control. I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm J.J. Hodshire. And this is Rural Health Rising. Welcome to Episode 65 of Rural Health Rising. I'm J.J. Hotshire, President and Chief Executive Officer of Hillsdale Hospital. And I'm Rachel Lott, Director of Marketing and Development. You know, Rachel, infection control is a term that is certainly now well understood outside of just healthcare, thanks to the COVID-19 pandemic. And today, we're going to get into the challenges for rural hospitals as they implement their infection control programs and what it has been like to deal with us during COVID-19. That's right. We are talking with someone who spends a lot of time both at his desk learning and researching and with our staff educating and teaching to ensure that we have a safe, clean facility for all our patients and their families. Our guest today is Randy Holland. He's a director of ancillary services and infection control officer here at Hillsdale Hospital. So welcome to Rural Health Rising, Randy. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, Randy, Before we ask you to tell us a little bit about yourself, I have to say I'm shocked that we have not had you on the podcast yet because you've been on Facebook Live like 100 times. 102. Um, So I'm very excited to have you on the podcast. This is a new and slightly different audience. But to start, for folks who have not seen you on Facebook Live or don't know you, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your work here at Hillsdale Hospital? Well, I figured I would be the first on your episodes, as JJ always said on Facebook Live, that I had the face for radio. So <laughs> this kind of oh, is my forte, I, never said that. Well, I would think. I never said that. <laughs> so, it's good to have you here. Yeah. Thank you. I am a hospital employee for almost 20 years now. Mm-hmm. I will say that I've been associated with the hospital. We always haven't been on good terms. There was a couple years I was out of the loop. <laughs> you were a travel nurse for a little I bit, I was right? a travel nurse for you two years. You wanted to years. go experience the freedom of serving in other communities. But he came right back to Hillsdale Hospital. Which we, I did. Which we appreciate. So it was two years I did the travel nursing. But 2002, I started at Hillsdale Hospital as a nurse's aide, actually, up on MedSearch. Hmm. Um, became the monitor tech in CCU. The nurses at that time, as they are now, were amazing and taught me a lot of things. So I decided to go on for nursing and graduated nursing school in 2010, oldest in the class. (laughs) Uh, But best in class. Well, actually, I was. That's good. So... That is one thing that nursing does provide. You don't have to be a certain age, even mm-hmm. when you get started. That's true. So not too long after I graduated, worked step-down CCU as nurse for a few months. As they say, I wasn't on the floor long. The infection control position came open, and I thought, well, that sounds really interesting. I started looking into what all infection control involves, and I like gross things, germs, you know. <laughs> All the good stuff. It so just fascinates you. It yeah. fascinates me. So I put in for that position and was awarded that position when I started. It was late in 2010. Um, I had a mentor that was certified in infection control that came and trained with me every week and did supervision and infection control when that started. You know, Rachel, uh, so 2010. 
2010. I came. Uh, it was my first mm-hmm. year here. And it was actually, Randy, yours was among the first interviews that I conducted uh, for management positions. That was my job at the time. Uh, and I, you know, just didn't know how we were going to get along. <laughs> and, well. uh, you know, you probably had the same thought. And so uh, it turned out to be a remarkable relationship. You're a good friend. Um, but you're intelligent, uh, and I think what is important in infection control, and you're going to talk about this, I'm sure, here in a few minutes, is just the credibility of coming from the environment that you came from and really working, quote-unquote, up through the ranks. But, you know, I want to talk a little bit because on this episode before, you know, we have discussed growing our own, uh, a pipeline for talent. And so we, you went through the TAP program, is that correct? I did, back when I started. Right. It was called Technically Advanced Personnel. Yeah. So there was an interview p- process to actually get into oh, the yeah. TAP program. I understand it was, it was a huge uh, entry. People wanted was, in this. Yes. I mean, it was like Sarah hundreds. Sarah Butler, who's our yeah. uh, director of behavioral That's true. health, who was she on came this podcast yeah. with us. She talked about her experience A lot of our too. staff came in that front door. I mean, but they weeded you out. Oh, yeah. Because it was pretty aggressive because you were also, you became a medic, right? Or an ENT or? EMT. EMT. So my wife did the TAP program first. We both worked at a factory. Huh. She got fired, said, I always wanted to be in healthcare. Said, hey, why don't you try this? We were reading the paper when there was a paper back in those days. And so she got in the TAP program. I started helping her study at night. And I was like, well, this is kind of cool. <laughs> so... Huh. I applied six months later for the TAP program and got into the TAP program. She finished hers just as I was getting started. So you don't get, at that time, you didn't get paid to be in the TAP program. Okay. Like this was all. Right. Did you on your own. had to finish the SENA part, which is a certified nurse's aide, before the hospital would even consider interviewing you for a position yeah. here. Yeah. And then you could work, if you got hired, you could work on the weekends while you finished your EMT. Mm-hmm. And the other good news about the talent pipeline, Rachel, is because, so Randy hires in, and then I think shortly after your Cena work, then you became a monitor tech, and we, we trained you there. Yep. And then we sponsored you to go to uh, which college? Kellogg. Kellogg. And uh, within three years, you had your registered nurse, is that right? Around that time? Two years at Kellogg. Oh, two, two I years did ago. my prerequisites at Jackson. Okay. So it's another example, Rachel, mm-hmm. of how, just like Sarah Butler, right. you know, we grow our own, it's called. And mm-hmm. Randy is a, an example of coming from a factory job, mm-hmm. taking the risk involved for him to come here, but now serving as an administrator of Hillsdale Hospital. I think it's a remarkable story. I really do. Right. So it's it's great to know. But Randy, I think, you know, one of the things that we do on every episode, so we get to know our guests just a little bit better, is we ask them, you know, a question. And it's called starting with the why. So I want to know, and I, and I want our listeners to know, what is your why? What motivates you? What gets you up out of bed in the morning? So I will say my why now is different than it was Mm -hmm. pre-COVID. True. So before COVID, it was come to work and just to interact. There wasn't too much emphasis on infection control, really, before COVID. I mean, I interacted with the employees all the time on the floor, 
you know, talking about different infections, hand mm-hmm. hygiene, all of the different little things that are infection control. But it wasn't, I don't want to say it wasn't perceived as a credible part of the profession, but it was a necessary part of the profession. Right. So it was more... Like thought it was more of a background or foundational task, not something that's front and center. Yeah. So it was get up, come to work, Mm -hmm. you know, interact, make sure nobody dies, hopefully from an infection today. Then COVID hit, and it was a huge game changer for infection Mm -hmm. control. It was Mm -hmm. like all of a sudden we're important, and Mm -hmm. people really look to us for the information to know what they're supposed to do, to know what the next thing is that's coming. And so getting up, coming to work now is more what's the next thing that's going to be out there. I mean, we've made it, I don't want to say through COVID, but we've made it through two and a half years, almost three years of COVID. So what's the next thing that's going to be out there that I'm looking for Globally, because it's not just about us here locally anymore when it comes to these things that I can let staff know about so they're prepared if it comes. Yeah. You know, Randy, let's let's talk about infection control. So when you hear that word, you know, it we know, Rachel and I know it encompasses quite a bit uh, in the healthcare setting. But one who's listening to this may not have experience with infection control. Maybe they don't have an understanding. So uh, when we think of infection control, it's not just about cleaning rooms or making sure that the patient's room is, you know, tidied up. And what is it? I mean, can you explain to us from the beginning to the end what your role is as it relates to patient care? So it is the basics, the cleanliness of our facility, Mm -hmm. making sure things are cleaned between patients or with patients that are infectious, making sure that the staff are wearing the appropriate protective equipment, Mm -hmm. apparel that they need to go in with the patient, but also making sure that they're not bringing it from one patient to another as they're working in and out of patients. Mm -hmm. But I also get all results, like culture results for communicable transmission diseases Mm -hmm. for community and hospital patients. So I go over those. You see that for community patients too. Yes. Anything that goes through our lab, so Mm -hmm. STDs, respiratory illnesses, anything that's a culture, I get those results and go through every day. Report on to the health department if it's something that's an immediate or fax it to them if it's Mm -hmm. some, you know, and if it's a patient that we see in ER, then make sure that the follow-up has been done with the patient appropriately. Mm-hmm. And it's also like invasive devices, central lines, ventilators, mm-hmm. Foley catheters, making sure that people aren't getting infections from those mm-hmm. and that people are cleaning those like they're supposed to mm-hmm. during their time here and that they come out when they're supposed to. It's now encompassing antibiotics because that's a huge part of future resistance that generations Mm -hmm. in the future may not be able to take antibiotics. So it's that we're using antibiotics appropriately. Appropriately. So reviewing all those, especially for our skilled nursing facilities and being involved in pharmacy and their review of those on our inpatient side. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it is a lot more than just 
making sure that the rooms are clean and making sure that our ORs, their temperatures are right and the humidity is right and the air exchanges yeah. are like they're supposed to be and the pressures are going the right way and Mm-hmm. If you're in a clean part, the air is not going in the dirty part. But it's a lot of data and stats too, Randy. I mean, it you're is. not. I mean, not only are you on the floor, you know, monitoring compliance from hand washing, right, yep. to donning and doffing of of the proper PPE, correct. Um, which we got our fill of during COVID, obviously. But you know, I I've came to respect this aspect of your job during COVID. And I took it for granted, you know, pre-COVID. And we still had cases where we were, you know, wearing PPE and the just sheer volume of work for staff can be overwhelming when you're changing out of those things, you know, every day. But one of the things I think that your job affords you is the work and the link between the community and the hospital. And I think that's an important link. I know you would come into my office often and say, we got an STD outbreak, JJ, in the county. We need to do something about this because you're seeing it first, Correct. right? And so a lot of stats, a lot of data, you know, a lot of the involvement is really looking at trending, right? Correct. And and so do you enjoy that part of it? No. Yeah, but it's something <laughs> that we have to is do. like the worst part. I yeah. really do not like stats and numbers, yeah, right? Mm-hmm. And that has really that part of the reporting has really gotten intensified with yeah. COVID right. because. There are certain things that we're required to report to CDC. Right. So it's called NHSN, National Health Services Network. And pre-COVID, it was just surgical site infections. There Mm -hmm. were certain surgeries that I have to put all the data in for every patient that's had that surgery, you Mm -hmm. know, Mm -hmm. during the month. But now it's weekly reporting, like the number of COVID patients we've had, the number that were vaccinated, the number that were fully vaccinated, mm-hmm. the number of staff that we have, and the vaccination status of all of our staff. And it's a lot more of the data input mm-hmm. now than what it was three years ago. But there is a lot of statistics and data involved in infection control and the necessity of it is to show, even if you're showing that, so we had no catheter-associated UTIs, the facilities that have catheter-associated UTIs are spending approximately $5,000 for each patient mm-hmm. extra. Mm-hmm. So that's the extended length of time that they stay right. in the hospital, right. the extra antibiotics that they need. And these aren't covered under... The costs that we're given, so our mm-hmm. reimbursement, is reimbursement part, because we get a you know the fee for whatever yes. they were admitted for. Right. This right. extra cost, the facilities are eating. Right. So if facilities are having ten or twenty of those a month, yeah. just in a catheter, that's huge. huge. Right. So it does show that our employees are doing what they should be doing to save us money that we could potentially based on nationwide numbers, could be losing. Mm -hmm. So it's important, but it's not a fun part of the job. Right, but necessary. I would rather look at the bugs. So I didn't (laughs) even put that part out there. So, you know, bed bugs, cockroaches, all of that, it's a part of everyday life. So Mm -hmm. if somebody here finds a bug, they put it in a jar, and it's always on, they put it in my desk. Yeah. 
Wait, you just walk into your office and there's a, there's a bug, a Often. jar yes. with a bug in it yes. sitting on your desk. I'd yes. have to bug you. You know, mm-hmm. well, I think, Randy, one of the things obviously is we have to talk about in, in communities like this, but everywhere, you know, patients are coming in and sometimes the, the housing conditions you right. know, are very poor. And so patients are coming in and that's why we have to control that, you know. Correct. And so we, it's not uncommon that once a week, we're going to have a story told to us about someone who presented to the emergency department who came in that is living in conditions where mm-hmm. they're they're bringing bugs in here. And so, you know, that has to be controlled because an outbreak can be devastating. So you've done a great job, and I want to commend you for that. But it's a lot of work because it encompasses so much. Well, I was going to say, it sounds like you have to be an entomologist, a statistician, a nurse, um, an yeah. engineer. I mean, what do you not politician. have to do? You have to right. be a politician. Right. So what does it really, what does it take to become qualified as, um, you know, to work in infection control? And I know you do have some special certifications and training as well. So tell us about those, but also what's what's kind of that baseline? How do you do all of this? So the mentor that I had, and I will say John Baker. Yes. Um, He's been on the podcast before. Yep. Good. Is amazing. Yes. And his knowledge base is at his minimum is probably more than I'll, you know, mm-hmm. You just have those certain people that just mm-hmm. know so much about their field. Right. And was a great mentor to start and to still be in contact with regularly. Mm-hmm. And if I have questions, that's who I call if I'm, like, really concerned about something. But for me, a lot of it was just going to CDC, doing the webinars, doing the education different education things that they have on their website that Mm -hmm. are available and free. There's also, for skilled nursing, it's AHRQ that has a lot of education specific because nursing home guidelines and what's required is completely different than hospital. Mm -hmm. So to have the two together is a little intensive sometimes. Um, And then... The major um, organization for infection control is called APIC, the Professional Infection Control Association. Mm -hmm. So I've been a member of that since I started in infection control. And then they have an annual conference every year that has tremendous amount of education, the latest thing, you know, the coolest new gadgets that we want to help clean Mm -hmm. or whatever, fight infections. But then a lot of education about different areas that not necessarily in rural health. I found this last year, the conference I did virtually, but all of the states and even globally are part of APEC if they choose to be. Um, but they see so many different things mm-hmm. at different places, oh, at yeah. big hospitals. Mm-hmm. That, And so to get all of that education just in case something shows up. And right. we've had weird stuff show up. And I'm like, I know what that is, you know. Yeah. And I had a friend that works CCU that her brother, actually this is a story from a few years ago, got scratched by a squirrel. And she was... He started having kidney failure, took him to a big facility, and we were working together, Mm -hmm. and she was talking to me about it, and I said, I think this is what it is. And she's like, what? 
And I said, has he been out? Because they're hunters. As I said, has he been out hunting lately? So you didn't know that he had been scratched by a squirrel that point? No. You just knew he, his symptoms. The symptoms. Yeah. Okay. And really? so they couldn't figure out. So I said, when you go up there, you need to tell him to check for this. I guarantee you that's what it is. And sure enough, it was. I was pretty proud at that time because wow. that was, yeah. you be know, too. she's like, how did you know that? I said, my brain. Right. So That's it's amazing. just looking different areas for education to mm-hmm. continuously mm-hmm. learn, but to be considered credible in the field, mm-hmm. they have a CIC certification. So that certification in infection control through CDC. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, is the main thing. So it really is. It's about engineering. You have to know mm-hmm. airflows and what the filtration rate is through these filters. Oh, that, and that's an amazing piece of his job. Drops. Oh my goodness! When I took over supervising environmental services, Scott Brown, our facilities manager at the time, said, "We need to meet with Randy." I'm like, "What do you mean meet with Randy? Mm-hmm. Not meet with Randy again?" And he goes, "No, no, no. I mean, he has a huge piece in you know intake and all of these things, and mm-hmm. it, it was a remarkable learning experience for me. But you were instrumental in that, so I think it's accurate." to say your discipline infection control touches just about every aspect mm-hmm. it touches employee it health yes. don't forget about that well oh yeah employee, employee health, health is a so huge piece all of what of you do employee vaccinations yes. exposures if somebody gets yeah. exposed mm-hmm. at work if certain amount of people say three people call in sick in the kitchen and they all have vomiting and diarrhea i need to check that out to make sure they don't have Mm-hmm. Something that's going to be contagious to people that are coming yeah. in eating the food yeah. or mm-hmm. certain units, you know. So all right. illnesses for employees get reported to me so that I can track to make mm-hmm. sure there's no trends yeah. going on or nothing, you know, that right. they're going to give to yeah. other people. Very, very important, uh, not only for the hospital base, but also for the community. So, you know, Randy, um, obviously you've just shared with us what it's like to be an infection control officer, you know. Pre-pandemic, you know, you're dealing with all of these issues. None of those issues went away during the pandemic, by the way. But now you get this added, you know, all right, responsibility of during a pandemic, what does an infection control person do? And so, you know, it would not be a week that passed by, Rachel, that Mr. Holland here did not send me a forward from some recruiting agency offering him three or four hundred thousand dollars. True story. Good grief. Three or four hundred thousand dollars a year. To become their infection control officer. Not cents. Not cents. Dollars. And that's what happened. What happened during the pandemic, we witnessed it. Infection control officers were tired mm-hmm. or they left because they were alone. In our hospital, huge facility here for our community, right? Right. we have one infection control person. Right. Uh, and that's a lot of responsibility. Now, if you mm-hmm. take that, he, he's got 38 beds on skilled nursing, inpatient side, OB, mm-hmm. psych, everything falls under him, employees, et cetera. Imagine companies with one infection control officer, hospitals, with hundreds of patient beds, right? Mm-hmm. And so infection control officers said, we're out, <laughs> we're done. Yeah. We're going to take, as a nurse, we're going to go back into another discipline. We're doing this. So recruitment for infection control became almost non-existent to find somebody. And then they were finding individuals in communities and paying them just unbelievable dollars. So I know for a fact that infection control was in high demand, still is, uh, for 
obviously pandemic era. Uh, and that's when expertise have to, has to be put in place because you're creating, you know, algorithms and programs and protocols. And, and writing very, a new policy like every right. other day. Every other day. <laughs> or, and the policy would change based on what the government yes. said, right. you know. So, so let's start with before the COVID pandemic started, uh, when you were just, you know, starting to hear about this, this new uh, virus, okay, you're hearing about it. I remember the conversation well because you were in my office. And we won't talk about all the discussion regarding around that. <laughs> but then we had the first case identified. And that's the moment that we all go, oh, boy. Right? I don't think, oh, boy, was No, I don't think that was it at, at all. And I remember yeah. where I was and I remember where you were yeah. the first case detected and how quickly you and I had to huddle because we didn't know what we didn't know at the time. So um, why don't you walk us through that first day up through the journey of where we've been in the last two years? So I will say when it first was in the news, mm -hmm. I was not that concerned about it. I was basing my perception of COVID-19 on the CDC. Mm -hmm. So I was specifically, like, I have told people multiple times over the years as infection control, for me, CDC is the Bible for infection mm -hmm. control. Mm -hmm. So the CDC and the World Health Organization, that's my go-to. Like, they're the experts. That's who right. I have to rely to get my information on. So the World Health Organization was, of course, ramped up first mm -hmm. before CDC. So for us in the United States, you know, initially it was kind of downplayed. There wasn't much. And then I was also doing the World Health Organization every Thursday, and I was watching their global, and it's like these other places are insane with this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in our first case, we had actually um, – instituted the command center mm -hmm. prior to our first case here mm -hmm. right. was the first case in Michigan, or not Michigan, but the United States, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. the incident command was initiated. So everybody kind of, we still weren't all freaking out about it yet. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, when the first case <laughs> at the hospital, it was like, oh, goodness, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. this is it. So we really... I don't want, we didn't freak, but went into combat mode, I yeah. would say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it was, okay, this is real. This is here. Mm -hmm. Everybody's frightened. Like when it first started, everybody pretty much was of the thought, you get it, you're going to die. You know, that because mm -hmm. that was the perception that was kind right. of out well, there. Well, there was at no first. treatment. We knew very little about even the disease process Correct. and how it was creating the symptoms it was creating or causing. And when the first case we had, like we had no issue with PPE because we hardly ever had to use it before that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, as far as face masks, stuff right. like that. Except for surgery. Yeah. yeah. It's like. So then it was immediately trying to educate the staff on this is what I know, this is what CDC is saying, this is what the World Health Organization is saying, this is what we need to do to protect ourselves. Mm -hmm. So that was a lot of the first month after our first, because we didn't get a huge influx immediately. Mm -hmm. And it just I'd say ramped morphed. up from yeah, there. <laughs> you know, I, I remember the command center. Now, Rachel, Remind me timing-wise where you were at. I was with you guys on those meetings. You originally, yeah. right? Because then you had, you left for baby John 
Oh yeah, that wasn't Talk to until he was been. Uh, I mean, no, that was a he year was born in. in yeah, March that was about a year in, right? Twenty one. So yeah. So yeah. so you were with us in all yeah. of those. I was rooms. pregnant through and, like the yeah. early parts of the pandemic. And yeah. please forgive me, just because it was a it's a blur. Oh yeah, anything and, you know? Yeah, it's all a blur. It, the last you know two years is like a yeah. hundred years. <laughs> but there would be. I mean, I remember constant texting back and forth. Oh yeah. Do you remember the first case that we thought Hillsdale College had? Yeah. Oh yeah. And uh, I remember eleven thirty at clearly. night. I was driving home yeah. from the hospital when you texted me yeah. or maybe you called me I can't remember and said we might have a case yeah. and I was like oh my gosh I was like yeah. do I need to turn around and you were like no 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 yeah so I get home and I immediately get and I was driving an hour and a half each way then that was before I moved and now I only drive an hour each way oh wow but uh, yeah it's great um but I remember I went upstairs to my home office and I got on my computer immediately and I started pulling everything I could from the CDC related to communications yeah. and, you know, drafting what a statement would be if we oh, needed to put a statement out. I mean, I was like we in were overdrive mode. two, three o'clock in the morning Yeah, texting each other. Because, yes. Randy, I'm like, all right. And, and the, the uniqueness of it, this was a missions trip student yes. who was, mm-hmm. you know, in the place where COVID yeah. had ramped. And so we were very concerned. Now, thank God that didn't lead anywhere and it mm-hmm. was a negative. Because that was February, if I remember yeah. correctly. Yeah. It was so our it was test about run. a month before we had our first actual case. It was our test run. And so mm-hmm. I remember the late nights. Well, it shut down the whole city, didn't it? It pretty much. I mean, it was the middle yeah. of the well, night. Well, it was a but combination, was... too, in those early days of like yeah. every now and then, every maybe week or every two weeks, there would be something on social media about Hillsdale Hospital has its first COVID yes. case. Yeah. And I had to be like, fake news, fake news. We don't have one yet. We and then don't. eventually it was like, we do have one we now. We do have one. You know? And this is how we're handling you it. You know, it was just, uh, you know, not that it yeah. made a huge And that's when Facebook Live started, though, wasn't it? Yes, Once we Randy had our first was on case. Our first yeah. episode. Yeah. It was right after we had our first case, or maybe it was right before. I think it was right at, right. It was the two dates that stick out in my head are like March 17th and March 24th. And wow. I don't know which was what. Yeah, there but, was, yeah. Yeah. It, was, so it was either right when we had the first case or right before we had the first case in Hillsdale County. And it was you and me and Yvonne from the local yes. health department. Yeah. And we answered questions for yes. like an hour. And that first Facebook Live, we had over 10,000 um, views. We, our reach was over 10,000 on that first one. And, you know, here we are two yeah. years later. Right. And JJ and I still do Facebook Live every yeah. single yeah. week. I never get much. invited anymore because so, I was For bad. good reason. Yeah, yeah good right. Reason. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you were right there at the beginning because yeah. what we were trying to do was to tell our community, like, hey, this is what this is, because there was so much information out there. Correct. There were so many headlines, and headlines are always misleading, oh, but when there's that geez. many who has time to read every article and go into yeah. the detail, and so we were like, we as your local hospital and health department are going to tell, are going to answer your questions and tell you what we know and how it's impacting us here, how we're preparing to be able to take care of you if this happens, all of that. And it, I mean, took off. It did. It, it did. really and took it's off. That, how that started was... You know, we wanted to educate. Mm-hmm. And that really is a lot of what infection control is. It really is. Is just to educate people on how to better protect themselves right. from getting infections associated with healthcare, mm-hmm. educating staff on how to take care of patients to not give them infections or to keep the infections that they have to that patient and not transmit them. To mm-hmm. somebody else because they came here for health care and now they got a disease from or an infection from somebody else, something right. they never came in with. So this was not necessarily the first major infectious disease experience that you've been through, right? Because I remember, uh, no. you know what I'm realizing? <laughs> 
So I always joke that like I uh, either have bad timing or I, bad luck or it's I'm everywhere just like you a go. bad your, your omen. Your former boss told me. When I, fir- when I first worked in healthcare, when I first started yes. in healthcare, it was uh, when the Affordable Care Act was being implemented. Yep. So the whole industry was like upside down. Right. And Ebola happened during that time. And then, of course, I rejoined healthcare six months before a global pandemic. Yeah. Like, this world has never seen it. So I don't know if warning. I brought it with me I think or, like, so. if like yeah. if I just said, well, and my office is haunted because my technology is always yeah. messing up. So maybe it is just me. They told me when I hire you, there's going to be some great <laughs> devastation. And it surely happened. It did. Yeah, really. But, but uh, it, it all, um, you know, it's all coming full circle now. Yes, but you were you. doing infection control oh, during yes. Ebola, right? And that so, was... Very scary. It it really didn't affect the U.S. the way that It was scary, but COVID it didn't has. affect us. But I'll tell How do you, you that? that I think we reacted more initially to Ebola and what could happen early on. Early on, I agree more so than, and maybe that was part of the reason that COVID was like, eh. you know, Ebola. They said that was going to kill us, and well, see, I we have did a theory about because I had in-depth training and it was mm-hmm. you had to watch each other don and off and we had right. all the plastic ready to half off mm-hmm. the emergency department and you remember oh. us getting called in in the middle of the Randy, night that night because the triage nurse was yes. sure we had an ebola <laughs> case and <laughs> i shut, was there yeah shut down the waiting room shut down the er yeah, and had the caution do not cross tape. Remember you and I showing people up in the were, middle of the night? And you oh, were like, what? And people I, were videoing for Facebook oh, back yeah. then. Oh, my Oh, word. yeah, they were. Oh, yeah. And then it was all over the headlines, you know, yeah. Ebola hits Hillsdale. And so Randy and I get in. I remember those days. <laughs> yes. Those were, those were challenging. So, yeah, there was Ebola. And now, what's next? Well, so I have a theory about the whole why people reacted differently to Ebola thing. Ebola was already a known virus, right? So people knew what it was. They knew how it affected people. They knew how quickly you could die and how and how it would kill you, right? Whereas with COVID, we really didn't know what we didn't know. Initially, there was a lot of chatter about it's like a flu because the symptoms were similar at the beginning, but the severity was obviously very different. So I think the fact that it was familiar in a way, even though it was a brand new virus, kind of had people with their guard down, right? But with something like Ebola, you know that's bad. Well, I think part of it, too, is coronavirus isn't new. Right. So there are, like, so many different strains. We went mm-hmm. through SARS. We went through MERS, which were both coronaviruses. They were right. sure were going to take us over in those respective years. Mm-hmm. And nothing really – I mean, there were people – a lot of people that died from those, but not – in the U.S., there weren't a lot. There were right. some, but it wasn't to the magnitude that this was. Right. Shall I remind you of the first conversation when I called a meeting with you and I to talk about uh, coronavirus? You brought into my Probably office not. a can of Lysol, and you set it on my desk. <laughs> and um, I, I, wasn't, I was not humored. Yes, you did. And you said, read the back of it. And I turned it around, and this is during the conversation of COVID. Mm-hmm. It said this will, you know, protect or disinfect from coronavirus one to whatever. And Randy's like, it's been here, you know. And and so I, to your point, there's there was back and forth. Right. You know, we had already heard that we knew about a coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so there was a lot of speculation. There was a lot of, you know, conversation and a lot of conspiracies and theories. But, but Rachel, I'm going to tell you, I think— Obviously, I don't think, I know 
we we did very well in Hillsdale County and through the advice and support of infection control mm-hmm. because we're not clinical. You know, I know right. I know operations, I can do all those things. So Randy, I want to commend you for that. But you Thank know the, you. the the question that I have for you as we wrap up is really what's the future look like, you know, in this post-COVID world? In other words, what has changed in infection control that you learned during COVID that will be lasting effects into the future? So I think it's, for me as infection control, it is that I really do matter in the organization. So, you know, pre-COVID, it was like, yeah, I have an important job to do. I'm Mm -hmm. infection control. Nobody really understood what that was. Right. People knew what it was. Or they were jealous they wanted that Monday through Friday schedule. Well, they did. Right? I mean, honestly. Well, I mean, but they didn't know. And you're kind of like the the rule maker and enforcer, yeah. right? Yeah. Like that probably was how guy. a lot of people, right, right. The bad he guy, was the because bad guy. you have to be the one to tell people, he hey, could shut this down a has room. to do different. Yeah, yeah he could right. shut rooms down. He could shut floors down. He could discipline staff. I mean, it was. And I didn't have an issue doing any of that. No. Right. I mean, it didn't bother, if it needed to be done, I would do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But some people can make a job look like it's not really a job. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to toot my own horn, but I will say that. In my position, sometimes I make it look effortless or mm-hmm. like I'm not really doing anything most of the time when every time I step foot on the floor, I'm looking, looking yeah. to see if yeah. there's a ceiling tile that needs to be replaced, looking to mm-hmm. see if that patient that came in or visitor is doing, you know, has their right. mask on, especially now post-COVID. Yeah. But post-COVID or as we transition to hopefully post COVID and Mm -hmm. into endemic instead of pandemic. Mm -hmm. It is just infection control in general are feeling more empowered. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there are more committees going to senators and congressmen that we need these things changed in healthcare to protect our Mm -hmm. patients, to protect, and not just in healthcare, but community. So it's getting more into the community to help people try to stay out of the hospital Mm because people come to the hospital with infections. So what could you be doing in the community to prevent this or so that it's not as severe that Mm -hmm. you don't have to go to the hospital? So I think it's just more empowerment. Right, which is important. Advocacy, patient advocacy is huge. Mm -hmm. And then community engagement, that's, that's looked much different in the last year, hasn't it? Yes. I mean, your relationship with the health department's always been good and strong, but I think it was strengthened during COVID because it had to be. You're reporting data, they're yes. they're giving data, you're helping them interpret certain things, which I think are important. So I think those were all the great reasons. So Randy, you know, we could talk probably for an hour about this. And I just want to thank you for your contribution at Hillsdale Hospital, but most importantly for our patients in the community for your involvement on on state protocols, uh, for your involvement in writing policy after policy after policy, <laughs> and oftentimes becoming the bad guy that has to enforce that right. policy. No one wanted to wear masks in Hillsdale, right? They still don't. And they still don't. And no one wanted this or no one wanted that. Or why do we, why can't I see my loved one? Why can't we do this? And oftentimes you were the conduit that I had mm-hmm. to refer people to. So once again, we want to thank you for joining us today, but also for your commitment to Hillsdale Hospital. Thank you. My pleasure. 
Before we close, we like to do a fun segment with each of our guests. So, Randy, we want to know, what is your most unique rural experiences or one of your favorite memories that is unique to rural life? And, Rachel, I, I don't know if you, you know what sure you're asking you want for. Me to answer this, this is Randy. He's, he's a unique fella. So we're going to ask that Randy, in, in context <laughs> of the most unique rural health experience, maybe? Related? No, no, no. no. I, want, I want the good you stuff. You want the good stuff? I want stuff? the juicy. Right. What, what's the great she asked story for you it. have? She I asked know you're for going it. to. So you want real rural? Real, 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 rural. Yeah. Well, you real, know you're real, rural. rural. When you, you say real, real, if what you're saying rural or rural, real, or yeah. Give so us yes, some. a lot of people that know me um, think it's quite funny that I am infection control at the hospital because I am also an animal lover. So I have my own little. I call it my mini farm. Of course, all I have now, because my wife made me get rid of them, was <laughs> I have goats, mm-hmm. baby goats this year, have a sheep, have ducks, mm-hmm. some chickens, you know. Well, I decided a couple years ago that I needed to raise our own food. So we have here in our community what we call the sale barn. So it's like an auction house place. People go there every weekend. Stuff's auctioned off. I actually went there to buy a mini mule for my granddaughter, but I didn't like it. Next thing that came up was two baby calves, and they were so cute. Oh, my gosh. Nobody wanted them. So I got them for why I bought them, I don't know, (laughs) $25 each. Well, how else am I going to get them home other than put them in the backseat of my truck? Oh, my gosh. So it's a true story. I, it is true. Because <laughs> I got so, a call from a community member, but go ahead, Randy. Uh, so I put the back seats up in my truck, put these two baby cows in there. Of course, I had no food because they are still bottle babies. Oh so I gosh. go to the food store. I don't know if we're allowed to say what it is, no. but so I won't say the food <laughs> store. So I go to the food store, I get out of the truck, and there's people looking, and I'm like, Have you never seen baby cows in the back of a truck? This is Hillsdale. <laughs> You were so, like, this can't be the craziest thing you've seen. It's not. So I've seen worse. But so I get home and I live close to my parents. We live out in the country, of course. And my dad sees me from his house getting them out of the truck. And he comes strolling over and says, what have you done now? <laughs> and and so I won't go into the pigs because no. I did buy pigs and they came home in the truck too. And that was oh a whole word. nother. But he was chasing the pigs across the street into a field, down a ravine, wrestling with the pig that got loose. And every time this happens, I get a call. Oh my usually gosh. from a community member going, do you know what he's up to again? <laughs> so that is very true, Randy. Mm. I do know that that mm. is very unique. <laughs> To your rural life. So, yes. wow. you're an animal lover. You love your I, baby goats. So, that's I like your do. biggest he thing does. I hear about, at least. He does. So. Well, I think on that note, Rachel, we pretty much are going to say thank you once again, Randy, for joining us today. Next time on Rural Health Rising, we'll have another great conversation with another great guest. So, be sure to tune in. And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five star review on Apple Podcasts and tell others why they should listen too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising. And you can now find us on Twitter. I'm at Hillsdale CEO JJ. Rachel is at Rural Health Rach. And you can also follow the podcast at Rural Health Pod. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. 
Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, and a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. Hosted by JJ Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. Special thanks to today's guest, Randy Holland, Director of Ancillary Services and Infection Control Officer at Hillsdale Hospital. For more episodes, interviews, and more information, visit ruralhealthrising.com. 